Second Kings, chapters 22 and 23, Selections. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidiah, the daughter of Adiah of Bozkath, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and walked in all the way of David his father, and he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. And Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law and the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. And Shaphan the secretary came to the king and reported to the king, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house, and have delivered it into the hands of the workmen who have oversight over the house of the Lord. Then Shaphan the secretary told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes, and the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, and Ahikam the son of Shaphan, and Akbor the son of Micaiah, and Shaphan the secretary, and Asiah the king's servant, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me, and for the people, and for all Judah, concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us, because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. Then the kings sent, and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him. And the king went up to the house of the Lord, and with all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the prophets, all the people, both small and great, and he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in, the, in this book. And all the people joined in the covenant. Here ends this reading. So we are now at the end of a sermon series that we've we've called Rulers, summed up in a verse from Psalm 146, Put not your trust in princes. We started at the beginning with King Solomon. And saw how, you know, despite Solomon's wisdom, how greatly he turned away from God. How the sins of a leader can affect a whole country. How you shouldn't think yourself smarter than God's law. We talked about the meaning of biblical justice. We talked about the daughters of Zelophehad seeking what was right and doing it in a right way. And last week, we heard about Rehoboam, a bad ruler who would not listen to his people or be a servant of the public. And so this week, we're concluding the series by talking about a good ruler, namely Josiah, the eight-year-old king. And first, a little bit of background. So God's people, the Israelites, were divided when Rehoboam came to the throne. But now, as 270 years later, the northern kingdom has been conquered by the Assyrians. The people have been scattered from there. Only the southern kingdom, Judah, remains. And a bit before Josiah, there was a good king of Judah named Hezekiah. He was faithful to God, and he led the people well. But his son Manasseh promoted idolatry, culminating in the sacrifice of his own son to a pagan god. The next king, Amon, also worships idols, but only has a brief reign before being assassinated. And then Amon's eight-year-old son, Josiah, becomes king. Now, I don't know what you were like when you were eight years old, but if I had been king at eight, there would have been a whole lot of Legos and marble runs built and not a whole lot of effective governing. But not Josiah. 
First thing we hear about him after the essential statistics of how long his reign was and what his parents' names were is that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the way of David, his father, as King David, his ancestor. And he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. He keeps the narrow path. He stays steady. He's not mature in age, but he proves to be a mature king, which isn't what you'd expect. It's certainly not like the song, I Just Can't Wait to Be a King of the Lion King, which, if I remember right, is the immature uh, lion cub singing about how he wants to have no responsibilities, and how is he going to have no responsibilities? By becoming king. While the bird tells him what a terrible ruler he would be at his age, if I'm remembering it correctly. It's a bit silly. See, positions of leadership, (laughs) they don't mean less responsibilities. You know, as a current fictional folk hero always says, with great power comes great responsibility. And now, Josiah's great strengths, and one of Josiah's great strengths in uh, carrying out that responsibility may have been his learning on the job. See, it's not what he does when he's eight that gets remembered. The events that we read about, they happen in the 18th year of King Josiah. This is when he's 26. I'm going to go ahead and say that elected government is better than hereditary, but there may be some benefits to someone getting to learn the job from their youth. I don't know what happened in those 18 years, but after he had ruled for that long, he was prepared for what came next. Yeah, I remember as a kid learning civics and being appalled and offended that the Constitution said you had to be 25, 30, or 35 to be elected to federal office. Like kids vote, like kids be senators. I was very invested in this as a 10-year-old. Now, I think age requirements are fine, but I have to admit there's a possibility that might have something to do with my turning 35 this year. Well, the now 26-year-old Josiah, what's he doing? He's intervening in a repair process that's gone on too long at the temple, which doesn't sound like the most exciting part of being king, but, you know, responsibilities. Maybe the city was clearing a blockage in the Jerusalem sewers and shot it up into the temple. (laughs) I don't know. Anyway, he sends his secretary, Shafan, to switch project management from the priests to the contractors themselves because, hey, they didn't have classes in, um, in seminary and being general contractors. It's all very much the boring parts of governance. And then something exciting happens. Then something exciting happens. While they're talking, the high, well, while they're talking, uh, the high priest tells Shafan that they've found a book in the temple. <laughs> and not just any book. The book of the law. It's probably the book of De- Deuteronomy from the Bible. And Shafan reads it. And he comes back to King Josiah, and he, he does what writers call burying the lead. He saves the exciting part for the last. Shafan tells Josiah that he finished his assignment, financial management of the project, was turned over to the contractors, and by the way, the priest gave me a book. He's still burying the lead. A, a book? What book? He doesn't explain. He just starts reading it. And I don't know if Shafan reads it all over the next two hours, or if he does you know, a little, a little bit at a time, but when Josiah hears it, he's appalled. He's disturbed. He's mourning, not at a loss of life. He's mourning at the loss of his people's faithfulness. See, Deuteronomy, this probably is the book that that they're reading. Deuteronomy describes the failures of God's people in the wilderness alongside God's continued faithfulness. 
but it also describes their struggles against other nations and against Moses as leader and lawgiver, records God's firm command, and this is the bit, God's firm command to never make an idol, to never be drawn away by anything, to never bow down to and serve anything created by God or man. Take care, it says, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. This, it says, again and again. And this Josiah heard while he was working on getting repairs done in the temple, the same temple where he knew that priests and past kings had brought in containers, artwork, and worship pillars for Baal, for Asherah, for any number of spirits and creatures of all the hosts of heaven. Moses says in Deuteronomy, If you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples. And that's exactly what happened just a few decades later. Judah was invaded, and God scattered the Israelites among the nations. King Josiah, the high priest, Shaphan, and other rulers, they go to a prophetess, a woman named Huldah, who gives them the word of the Lord. God will bring disaster to Jerusalem because of its sins, she says. And just a brief aside, this is one of the reasons that I believe Christians have to support women's ordination as elders. Not only did Hulda teach the word of God to men, it actually would have been a sin for her not to teach them. In any case, there's no way around the disaster that will come now. But perhaps Josiah heard the hope in Deuteronomy 2, where it says, From where God will scatter you, you will seek the Lord. And the Lord, you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him. You will return to the Lord your God, for the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your ancestors that he swore to them. And that's just what happens too. God's people repent and seek him, and he brings them out of exile to home. This makes an impact on the young king. He publicly makes a covenant to obey God from now on. He reads God's commands from the Bible to the, to the gathered people. Did you, you, you hear that? Both high and low. All the people, all the men of Judah and Jerusalem, they come together for this, for this event. He, he summons them for this. Josiah makes a covenant, and he determines to reform religious worship among God's people. He had turned over control of the repairs to the contractors, but now he's, he's doing what's often the most difficult thing for a construction project. He's making big changes halfway through. But here, whether it annoys the contractors or not, that turns out to be the absolute best thing he could have done. Because here's what he orders the remodel to do at the top of the list. Get the Baal and Asherah paraphernalia out of there. Fire the priests who are burning incense and the worship of the sun and moon and the stars at altars in the hills around the city. Instead of burning incense at those poles and, all, and idols, he orders the poles and idols themselves to be burned. He orders that the men who are working as prostitutes in the temple can't be there anymore. He breaks down all the pagan altars, desecrates the site where people, like one of his successors as king of Judah, made sacrifices to Moloch by killing their own children. 
He orders that there will be no more mediums or necromancers or household gods and idols. And last, and last but not least, Josiah celebrates the Passover. It seems like the most ordinary Jewish thing to do. It seems like it should go without saying that God's people kept the Passover, but when Josiah celebrates it, it hadn't been done for centuries. King David, King Solomon, the prophet Samuel, Hezekiah, none of them ever celebrated the Passover. But in the 18th year of the reign of King Josiah, this Passover was kept to the Lord in Jerusalem. Josiah is a ruler under God. He is setting an example. He doesn't make others follow God. He, he doesn't. You know, as much as that's, that's sometimes our impression of the Old Testament, he doesn't force anybody to follow God, but he does show them that he is covenanting to obey God. He's listening to God's word and scripture. He's listening to the prophet Holdra. He's letting them, he's letting God's word correct him. He doesn't have all strength. You know, he, he becomes king when he's just a boy. And his reign ends years after this when he dies in battle with a powerful Egyptian army. He doesn't have all the strength. He can't do it all on his own. But he shows just the sort of personal, private faithfulness that is the food for public faithfulness. He recognizes, I may be king, but I'm not at the top. I am not separate from God's rule. At the same time, he's humble and takes initiative. Being under God doesn't mean you don't act. It means that you do, that you'd be an actual leader. He's selfless. He continues to act despite knowing that he won't live to old age. Holdra tells him that. Faithfulness, even knowing that it won't have a reward for himself. You know, it's hopeless. It's not a reason for Christians, nor is it a reason to stop doing good. Shows dignity in the face of losing, which is better than abandoning your duties. Now, today, I would never expect any civil ruler to lead a reformation of the church, and I wouldn't want them to. Don't think that the church can do what the civil government can do, or vice versa. But be obedient to God, whether you're in church or in public office. We need to take Christian values with us wherever we go. Love of neighbor. Yeah, unconditional. Nobody has to earn that love from you. All neighbors. Love of all neighbors. A caring about looking after the most vulnerable. You know, Jesus calls them the least of these. He says, you mean food to the hungry, drink to the thirsty, clothing to the, to the naked, the poor. Caring about the poor. Welcoming the stranger, the friendless, visiting prisoners. God's long-standing priority is for widows, orphans, and sojourners, resident foreigners. You know, take Christian values with you by not restraining the gospel, by not misrepresenting Christ in our faith. Terrible when people do that in politics. By ensuring that Christians are free to practice our faith, in part by ensuring that others are free to practice their religions. You know, we know the commandment to not steal we're opposed to exploitation. No one should gain from harming another. Have a commandment to, to be faithful in marriage. Believe that fidelity in marriage and chastity and singleness are actually good for people. 
Not just that it's, you know, something that God says, but that it's actually good. Not that personal sins should be criminalized, but <laughs> no reason why I'd say the growing industry of pornography should be legal. Other things besides. We carry our Christian values with us wherever we go. A lot of it comes to this. We believe in the dignity and worth of every single human being. The question is never, does this person deserve to be treated with dignity? The question is never, which human lives are valuable? Rather, it's God's image always deserves to be treated with dignity. Protect every human life. The dignity and worth of every single human being. Of all ages, which sounds conservative. Of all ethnicities, which sounds liberal. And see, that's the thing. As Christians, we can't adopt a Republican platform or a Democratic platform, not entirely. We always have to be outsiders to some degree because we follow a higher calling, a higher law. It's important to remember that your political views come second. You may be a Democrat, a Republican, a socialist, a libertarian, an anarcho-syndicalist, but you're also a Christian, and you're a Christian first in all of it. Keep a Christian keep Christian hope. Keep a Christian attitude. Josiah, when he heard a word from God that his people would be invaded, scattered, and then God confirmed it for him, he was told he wouldn't live to see the hope of his people. And for all that, he didn't give in to his fear. He didn't throw up his hands and say it's hopeless. He was faithful. He trusted that God would do what was right so he could do what was right too. The truth matters. Keep Christian hope. Keep a Christian attitude. The truth matters, and we can't be taken in by conspiracy theories. And don't ever tell others something bad about the party you don't like unless you're sure it's true. Don't spread false ideas. The truth matters. No idolatry of rulers that you like. God always has to be first in your life. And no hatred of rulers you don't like. Love of enemies. And no fear. No fear. This is not the last word. This is not the end. No matter who is in the governor's mansion, Christ is still on his throne. Your identity, your self-worth, your hope are in Christ, not in the world. So what's the final verdict on Josiah? I still say that if you made me king at eight years old, I just would have built Legos or a theme park. Which makes me wonder how old the king of Denmark was when Legoland got started. <laughs> But Josiah does much better. The Bible's final verdict on him is that before him, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might according to the law of Moses, and did, nor did any like him arise after him. None. Until a 12-year-old Jesus entered the temple and taught the priests, and 20 years later cleansed the temple like Josiah had done, this time by driving out money changers and then died as a sacrifice in those same hills where Josiah broke down the pagan altars to purify all who would be his people to enter the kingdom of the covenant with God forever. Whatever happens in the world, whatever happens in the news, whoever the rulers are, Christ is still on his throne. And as Josiah trusted God, we can still put all our trust in our good eternal king. Amen.